Hello and welcome everybody to According to Andrew number 97, Lessons of the Franciscan Way, applicable for today. Um, so this was a essay that was written by Marie Rothbard back, I believe, in the 90s um, about this book that was written by uh, Francis or Samuel Francis uh, called Beautiful Losers. So you can see that up on the uh, the screen there. Uh, and Marie Rothbard's the one with the yellow background and Francis is the one uh, with the I guess, door in the background uh, on the screen. <clears throat> so the idea behind this book, as far as I understand it, coming through the essay, was it wanted to come up with ideas and strategies for how to actually affect uh, change within uh, society and kind of look at, well, okay, the left has been very uh, effective at these various things. Why have they been effective? Things like that. So uh, it kind of goes into that. Uh, so I read through the article, it's about 13 pages long. I'll link it in the um, description if you guys want to read it. It's a, it's a pretty easy read. Um, but I had some thoughts on it, and I thought this would be a good uh, topic for the, the podcast. So, um, it seemed like, well, maybe that's not accurate, but uh, the idea was to kind of create a movement, right? So another example of that kind of thing would be like the populist movement. Uh, they were mainly looking at 19th century movements. So uh, the populist movement was end of the 18th century. Um, so they're looking at uh, kind of the left's uh, Marxist type movements that they've seen uh, rise up within their lifetime. And then also the, uh, what book is it? Uh, kind of the conservative reaction to that and what have they been effective? Have they not been effective? Um, answer of course is they haven't been effective because the conservatives conserve nothing um but early on one thing that he had pointed out was the iron law of uh, oligarchy i don't remember where he said <coughs> that came from he, he cites almost everything as he's writing here um but basically the idea behind that is every organization will be run by a small elite uh of its most able interested and energetic members. And I thought that was interesting because if I look at like kind of politics today and maybe why somebody wasn't, doesn't want to get involved, why I maybe don't want to get involved, uh, it seems like a drag, you know, and that almost seems like des by design uh, for me, because as we can see the way that America is being run, it's not being run by its best and brightest, right? It's not being run by the most able body, but interested in energetic is an interesting two other correlators to that because, okay, maybe they're not the most able, but uh, they are the most interested in that topic, and they are the most energetic about that topic. And that's probably going to beat you out over able-bodied uh, a lot of times. Uh, when you look at people who are successful, a lot of times uh, it's not necessarily that they're the best in the certain field. It's that, uh, you know, they were willing to try more often or that they, were, they had a passion for it above and beyond uh, what other people had. So uh, I find it interesting that the current elite maintain power even if they are not the most able, uh, they are the most interested and energetic. They maintain this monopoly by intentionally making uh, law and other aspects uninteresting uh, to the greater public. That's me probably just projecting because uh, I find it kind of boring. <laughs> Though I do listen to a law podcast all the time, so I don't know. Do I find it interesting? Do I not? I, I don't want to sit there and tediously read through like a 900-page document. I, I remember saying uh, if I ever became president or, or got into a, a, power, a position of power, my first uh, law would be, or executive order would be, uh, you can't write a bill more than like 20 pages so I can actually flip and read the thing um, in a reasonable time. <coughs> uh, either that or um, 
maybe it's just the nature of running government where you have to have like these long tedious things because if you think about like um rule like just think about uh magic gathering is a good example uh i think about all the times where you're trying to play a card or something like that and you, you play two different cards and they got these crazy interactions you got to go look up some rule book somewhere of like the million extra rules of like how these things interact because there's such weird like edge cases and stuff like that and a lot of times that's why law becomes so cumbersome and stuff like that is because you you write a law you have this kind of intention um and then people always try to push the boundaries people always game theory it and try to um push the limits of what they can kind of get away with and see uh well where how does this law actually play out um and it's a good thing because it kind of tests and and reinforces or makes rigid the law but then it becomes cumbersome because you have all this case law and all this other stuff that um you have to kind of understand to even uh, get to that point uh so i remember i read a book one time um i think it was by uh lind uh about like fourth generation warfare i think it was called victoria uh and the first like half the book's amazing um like really uh energetic like you just you get sucked in um but one of the things that was i found kind of funny in the book was uh they made laws so that they wouldn't be complicated and that so anybody like you didn't need lawyers anymore and, and anyone could represent themselves and that sounds nice in a sense and if you kept the community small enough that would work but the matter of the fact is as communities get to a certain size and when uh when these laws that seem very basic end up becoming more and more complicated because you have these edge cases of like okay well uh, you know, here's kind of an in-between case, or uh, here's like an outlier that doesn't really fall underneath the law, but kind of does, um, and all that stuff needs to get sorted. It ends up creating a need for a lawyer, even if you didn't want one. Uh, so, I, I mean, it was a fantasy book, so it's not like the, the end of the world, but, or not fantasy, but fiction. Um, not the end of the world, but, uh, you know, this is why systems become more bureaucratic and cumbersome over time and eventually usually end up creating laws that kind of contradict themselves and things like that and why you devolve from a rule of law to uh law by rulers which the rulers in this in at least in america's case is the judges they just get to decide anything that they want because they're like there's so much case law and there's so much stuff that just contradicts it's, itself that you can't actually be consistent on anything and there's no uh basis so they just basically get to uh decree by fiat what is and what isn't correct uh that is wildly off what the actual article talks about <coughs> but those are my thoughts on stuff um uh one other interesting thing that came up uh, pretty early on was the idea of elite circulation um and you know rothbard being kind of uh anarcho-capitalist kind of believing in that idea he he believed that the free market was the best way for uh, elites cycle because if you look at entrepreneurs they usually cycle pretty quickly and they they cycle based on providing people what they are actually want and he saw that governments didn't really cycle uh that off the elites in that that area didn't cycle very often and uh led to stagnation and stuff like that and in that sense i agree with him uh but i think it needs to some of those things need to be tamed because if we've seen uh, with these international corporations and stuff like that, uh, there's, it's not all good. There's some bad stuff that has come with that. Um, and so some of these interests need to be curtailed for the interest of the nation. So uh, basically, he's right that elites in government don't get rotated often enough. And that can lead to a stagnation and an issue within that, uh, that group. Um, so we need to create a system in which they do kind of have some uh rotation and pressure uh that the entrepreneurs in the free market kind of experience 
but are is still within that realm. I don't I don't know exactly what that system would look like, but that that's kind of the basis for the system that you should be looking to do. Um, and then also making sure that the national interest state uh, at its forefront, meaning that uh, you can't allow elites, foreign elites, to get into that cycle uh, for governmental power. And uh, the other one, leave entrepreneurial um, uh, capitalists to try to make and, and provide things in the free market as best they can. Uh, and let that turnover happen as well, but uh, keep them in check, kind of like what China's doing uh, today, where uh, the businesses have to serve the interests of the nation. You can't just become extremely wealthy and then ship all of your uh, factory jobs off to uh, China or some other low uh, labor cost country. You have to do things to make it so that you can uh, maintain that. And it's also <coughs> incumbent on the, the elites within the government to work with those uh, corporations as well to make sure that they don't overly uh, regulate and burden them to the point that they can't succeed uh, within their own nation. Uh, but the more autarkic that you can kind of make your economy, the more resilient you are to shocks and stuff like that, the less need you need to get involved in uh, foreign affairs and things like that. You are overall a stronger, more independent nation the more you can do that. Now, most nations can't pull that off because they're just not... They don't have the land mass and the natural resources available to them to be able to do that. But um, a couple of nations that could pull that off uh, is America and Russia for sure. Uh, maybe China. Uh, the oil thing is the biggest thing with China. Um, I don't know if they have any good sources of oil within their country. Um, but they have the land mass, at least, to potentially have all of the various um, natural resources that they could potentially need. Do they have them all? I don't know. <clears throat> Uh, then he kind of gets into uh, the managerial elite idea, and this is kind of what we're going to talk about for most of the rest of the uh, podcast here. Um, so the idea behind the managerial elite, which is a very astute observation, is <coughs> that after World War II, uh, basically, or actually it wasn't, it was called the managerial revolution, is what he, he called it, and the idea that uh, more and more of the jobs and functions within society became bureaucratic and had all of these cushy um, uh, administrative type jobs and things like that. Um, HR departments got developed and bloated and all this this stuff. Um, when I was first kind of listening to it, it's and I, I mean, I don't have him to talk to me and, and it wasn't exactly clear through the text, but uh, there seems to be two lines. So there's that he could have been thinking about this. So there's the line of kind of the corporate cancer angle that Vox Day talked about, and we'll talk about how that relates to uh, what he was discussing here. And then there's just like general administration stuff. So <coughs> I'm guessing he's not talking about general administration stuff, but I wrote something down about it anyway, so I'm going to tell you about it. Um, so it, uh, so adding all these Managerial jobs certainly adds to the cumbersomeness and the bureaucracy within a system. Uh, but if you want economy, the current economy that we have uh, that is interdependent as ours, that is able to produce highly complex and precise machines that kind of compound on each other, this precise machine allows the production of this more precise machine, which, you know, um, those kind of things require uh, vast arrays of um, networks and trade and world stuff so as as bad as globalization has been there are aspects of it where uh you know these high precision machines and stuff like that 
have been a something that have been able to come out of it. Can we still have those kind of things without needing to pull on the resources of all of the world? Yes, but I think it would take us longer to get to that point. Um, which there's nothing wrong with that. It's just kind of it's a trade-off. Um, but I think to have an advanced economy like that and not one that has all this administration and stuff like that is is kind of inevitable because I worked at a place that tried to run a company with no administration or processes uh, and it did produce parts and it was profitable, but the what it did produce and what it could have produced, there was a massive gap there. <coughs> um, and without these, uh, without those kind of administrative or managerial elite type people that in those places or managerial revolution that he kind of saw, um, I don't think he would have been able to implement things like uh, lean manufacturing and, and stuff like that. Uh, it's not like they didn't have engineers before World War II, though, so uh, probably not exactly what he's talking about. And he's mainly probably talking about the um, useless jobs or useless tasks. Uh, there was a... Uh, there, there's some YouTube channel, I forgot the name of it, but he, he had a video on... Uh, like useless jobs, basically things that you are just doing uh, that are are there to just kind of keep you busy. Um, a good example is the TPS reports from uh, the Office Office Space, I think is the movie. <coughs> um, just a useless piece of paperwork that no one's going to check or read or whatever, and it's just it's busy work to kind of uh, fill up your 40 hours because there isn't actually 40 hours worth of productive work for you to do. And so they just have you waste your time on these menial, pointless tasks. Um, but you get paid well for it. And it's something that kind of eats at your soul. Because uh, I know I had a job that I... There were certain aspects of it that felt like that. And it just... It never felt like I was doing... Having the impact that I needed for the amount of money that I, I was getting paid kind of thing. And uh, I don't know if that kind of guilt is some way that they control people. Um, to where it's like oh, you, you don't want to go along with this? Like, where are you going to get paid to do, you know, this nonsense kind of job as well kind of thing? So that way you can pressure people with <coughs> um, various things like masks and other nonsense. Um, but that that's kind of a digression from what we were actually talking about. Uh, but the thing that he did touch on a little bit later was uh, he discussed the managerial elite actually sounds like a corporate cancer in a sense that has converged and is serving the narrative and not the uh, customers of the business. And this is something that we've seen a lot, especially since uh, wokeism has kind of taken over the corporate and just kind of cultural zeitgeist, let's say. Um, <clears throat> but interestingly, he didn't see them kind of taking over in the way they did. So, which in the 90s, like I don't, in the 90s, I don't know how you would have seen this kind of thing coming. Um, maybe you could have, but I'm not aware of anybody that saw kind of woke culture erupting as it did. Um, so he didn't think that could happen because he didn't think wokeism... Uh, wait, what? Did I, he did not foresee the rise of wokeism and did not think that investors could be cowed by the woke mob or by their propaganda that hurt... Uh, the bottom line. So he's like, investors, their main, main motive is profit and money and stuff like that, and they're not just going to take a loss just because some crazy hippie or whatever uh, called them racist or something like that. Uh, turns out, yes, they will. And there's other aspects for it. <coughs> um, 
that I'm sure Rothbard would have recognized had he been alive today kind of thing, where uh, there's various governmental incentives and, and things like that to kind of conform to this. Um, well, I don't... Well, I do think libertarians over-prescribe. Uh, it's the fault of the government to things. Uh, there have been various little things throughout uh, that... Subtle things that the government has been doing to kind of coerce uh, investors or other entrepreneur-type people to kind of kowtow to things like wokeism or other cultural-type things that have been happening. <clears throat> Uh, he also underestimated how brazen the managerial class uh, would be, claiming that a gardener at the Rockefeller estate would never be so bold as to override the will of the estate owner and plant the garden as they saw fit, despite the objections from the actual owner of the garden. However, we have seen repeatedly where the SJW does something outrageous, and when the CEO tries to punish them, the CEO finds that he is the one that is out the door. So, you know, we've seen this kind of over and over. Uh, so his example was uh, Gardner and Rockefeller. Rockefeller would be like, oh, don't plant that, or I want this this tree moved over here. And then, you know, they'd come back and be like, oh, so you think blah, 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 call him racist. And then somehow uh, Rockefeller is thrown out of his own estate or some some weird thing where he, he has to sell the property. Not the perfect example, but uh, we've seen a lot of the, those kind of things. So it's interesting that he was kind of discussing these things and couldn't imagine our culture devolving to a point where that kind of stuff would happen. But we are that is kind of where we're at right now, which is interesting to kind of see that he was looking ahead. And he did um, acknowledge later on that uh, this could potentially happen, but he didn't. Uh, there was nothing at the time to indicate how that might develop or, or something like that. And so he's like, basically, you know, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. And that, I think that's a fine response uh, to that concern. <clears throat> in the 90s at the time, which was 30 years ago now. Uh, and then to kind of continue on, uh, the main thing he did not see developing was how effectively the woke mob uh, could instill fear in the hearts of those who were supposedly in charge. Uh, it is quite reminiscent of when the mob in Rome would get whooped up and all the senators would have to flee. <coughs> uh, it's not as violent, obviously, that people's lives aren't at risk, but um, that kind of Twitter mob, as it were, does happen quite often um, within this paradigm. Uh, though, at the very end, he does mention that uh, one of the reasons that this couldn't function is because they wouldn't be doing... Basically, the core function of the co corporation, they wouldn't be doing that, so they'd, there'd be no use for them, so they would get fired and stuff like that. And we've kind of seen with Google and Apple, like, uh, these people are kind of running the show, and that isn't really happening. But the thing is, it's not that they aren't useful to the company, because they're, they're not useful to the company, but they're kept on anyway because of, uh, I don't know, propaganda, let's just call it that. Um, but they do serve someone else's purpose, which is another reason that what they're, why they're in there. Uh, Rothbard assumed that purpose would be to be, be creating a successful company. However, the actual objective seems to be tearing down Western civilization and Christianity. Once they have served their purpose, they will be tossed aside like all of the devil's minions. And uh, we haven't definitely haven't reached that point uh, within our societal degradation collapse kind of thing, but uh, we're getting there. <coughs> it's a uh, you know, slow march towards awfulness, let's call it that. 
one other very interesting thing that he brings up is that uh, he basically brings up the exact same question that uh, Machiavelli brings up in his discourses. So one of those questions is, who is a better arbiter and better at maintaining the society? Um, and his thing was maintaining freedom and stuff like that, but basically his whole thing was, how do we get back to what America used to be, what America was founded on, its principles, its, its ideas of freedom and stuff like that. And he said the best people to maintain that are the masses, and not the elite, uh, masses, the, the general populace. Um, and Machiavelli's was the exact opposite. His was, it was the elite. His examples were Venice and Sparta. Uh, and I actually think they're both right, but you have to add a little bit of context as to why they're both right. So, Rothbard, when he's looking at this, um, is looking at it from a perspective of the current regime and how everything's kind of de degraded and stuff like that, and how the will of the people isn't being enacted and the national interest isn't being looked out for, <coughs> and the core tenets of what the country was founded on aren't being followed. So in that regard, uh, the and the reason for that is the elites that are running America aren't American. So... If, uh, but the people that are, are demanding that um, things be done in the interest of the nation are American, and therefore they are a better arbiter for what uh, should be done and the uh, prescriptions for the current problems that are being faced right now than the people that are in charge at the current juncture. Uh, Machiavelli's analysis is correct if both the nation and the <clears throat> um, and the, if the elite are from the nation from which they are ruling, because, uh, the elite of that have, were either, either built the society and therefore know better how to maintain said society, or they, um, are the descendants of that and therefore are better, uh, set to maintain the society on top of the fact that, um, when the masses try to get power, they generally try to, uh, take, uh, more than they can give, not that they can give, but, um, where are we, uh, the masses are only interested in amassing more power and resources for themselves when they get into power, uh, this is seen throughout, uh, you can see it in Athens' democracy and things like that, uh, no overall concern for the health of the governmental structure <coughs> that is being done, a part of the reason for this is the responsibility for maintaining the structure is widely distributed, distributed amongst er basically the whole populace making it so everyone assumes some it's someone else's problem. Uh, while the windfall from the power and resources extracted is beneficial uh, directly to the individual. Uh, this makes it so no one maintains the actual structure, and basically an extraction happens on the, from, on the society-wise, and it creates a deleterious effect where it ends up crumbling the society over the long term. Uh, it can take a while, uh, <clears throat> especially if things are kind of uh, kept in check. Rome's a great example. I've been reading a book on Sulla, so it's kind of forefront in my mind of how their system worked. But it's also kind of what the American system was based on, so it's a good example uh, to kind of go back and pull from. Uh, because you had the tribunes and the Senate, and over time the tribune got more and more power, but uh, the Senate was able to kind of, as, as a balance to that, and kind of able to wrest some of that control back, and then eventually when uh, some of the dictators and stuff like that came. Uh, Sulla, as as such, uh, kind of reset that to where uh, they s uh, greatly diminished the power of the Tribune. <coughs> um, 
not didn't get rid of it, but uh, kind of put it back to the level that it should be at and uh, gave the organization and um, maintenance of society back to the Senate. Now, one of the reasons it got that bad is because the Senate was doing a bad job of actually maintaining the society in which they were done. There's a lot of corruption and stuff like that, uh, things we are all too familiar with today. <clears throat> but uh, it was rather interesting. Um, so then Rothbard gets into highlighting the failures of conservatism, uh, especially striking is his assessment that the liberal revolu revolution happened in 1938 with the New Deal and goes to highlight that uh, the adage that conservatives are illiberal are conservatives are liberals driving the speed limit. <clears throat> so basically, he's talking about uh, how all these people are conservatives standing upon the mountaintop yelling "stop," and in reality, the uh, the train's already passed them. And so then they turn around and they're like, "Well, I guess I I gotta get with the program and yell stop." And then you know the same thing happens with everything that's um, going forward. A lot of the reason for this that he diagnoses is. Um, the revolutionaries are proactive and conservatives are reactive and you're not getting anything done if you're reactive. Uh, that's why I think it's very important to kind of, uh, you know, to, to get stuff and take our culture and dial things back and not dial things back, but reset them and rebuild. Uh, we have to kind of change. We can't be reactionaries. We have to be uh, restorationists. We have to uh, restore what things were built. That means you're going to be tearing a lot of stuff down. And you're going to have to rebuild a lot of stuff from the ground up. You're going to have to gut a lot of stuff um, and leave just the whatever cultural um, framing was there and then kind of rebuild the, the structure around it. Uh, maybe in some senses, instances you got to tear the whole thing down because the whole thing's rotted all the way to the uh, core and to the, the foundation. In that case, then you have to tear the whole thing down and rebuild the whole thing. Um, that's kind of on a base-by-base -base thing. Uh, but, you know, the the barbarians aren't at the walls. They're inside the walls already, and it's time to expel them. Uh, Rothbard, interestingly, is against uh, a Caesarist or Sullian uh, strategy to restore the rule of law. <clears throat> I am of the opposite opinion. Uh, that is one of the only ways of getting any semblance of the Republic back. Uh, leaving the sorting of this to Congress runs afoul of the same issue that I talked about with um, the elites versus the masses. A <coughs> uh, question from earlier. Uh, responsibility for action is too widely distributed, and if Congress fails to take action, uh, they cannot be held to account as the blame is too dispersed. Uh, thus, the executive is the only one who can restore and then return power to Congress to maintain it, which uh, they are much more capable of doing. Uh, interestingly, uh, Rothbard acknowledges that to drain the swamp, as Trump had kind of said, uh, it were, oh, I do have a lot more to talk about. Okay. Uh, it would take a leader like Lenin or Pol Pot are the examples he used. I like to use Sulla as an example. <coughs> um, <clears throat> uh, with steely determination for me, that means, uh, won't balk at the need for executions. Um, otherwise they, uh, end up subsumed by the state apparatus. Uh, this example the example he used was, was Reagan uh, in his day. In ours, it's Trump. Um, at the time, he did not see anyone that could take the mantle of a Lenin-type character or a Solo-type character. And 30 years later, I don't think that there, that has changed. I don't see anybody uh, out there politically that could take up the mantle. Uh, it seemed like Trump might be that person, but uh, <clears throat> when he, you know, 
Actually, uh, January 6th, the uh, one-year anniversary of that is tomorrow, and we, when you kind of failed to act that day, it was, um, you know, that was kind of the make-or-break day. So that was pretty disappointing, let us just say. Um, <clears throat> he goes on to also point out that uh, leftist-sized markets also almost never concern themselves with theory and are all about strategy. They are a group of action, not words. Conservatives and libertarians, by contrast, are all talk, no action. Um, he doesn't say those exact things, but that's basically the gist of it that he gets at. <coughs> uh, he also, uh, starts to end up talking about, uh, McCarthyism and stuff like that, and how, uh, various, and also Pat Buchanan and stuff like that, and, uh, the people who are effective against the left are the ones who get the flack. If you aren't getting, uh, flack, that means you aren't over the target, and that means you're not doing your job right. Uh, if you're not being called a Nazi or a fascist or something like that by left, that means uh, you are playing directly into your hand, which makes it really easy to tell whether or not you're doing something correctly. It's a good um, guiding principle, let's call it. <clears throat> uh, Rothbard sees McCarthy as being uh, effective at taking down the establishment left and is now why... And, and it is now, it is because of that, that now why mentioning him is, uh, in a good light, is considered verboten. Uh, thus, this offers us an example with Amer the American legal framework as a basis of strategy of a similar effectiveness. So, that was kind of a whole mouthful. Basically, McCarthy, uh, McCarthyism threatened uh, the leftist establishment and the communists that had kind of snuck their way into uh the reins of power during the 1950s, 1960s, and stuff like that. I think he was 50s. Um, and so we should go back and study what McCarthy did and kind of um, take look at um, some strategies and stuff like that uh, <coughs> and <clears throat> effective tools that he used within our legal framework to affect the kind of change that he wanted to see um, as we saw we we could see with the reaction to him that he was over the target and he was considered a threat to them and therefore um is an effective uh tool to be used there's other great examples throughout the history of sulla and um trump and about not trump um there's other examples throughout history that i'm currently blanking on a bunch of their names but um they aren't within the legal framework of america so it takes a little bit more understanding of how that would be adapted to our current situation. Due to this being within our legal framework, it's a much more plug-and-play uh, kind of strategy. Be like, okay, these are the strategies he's used. Let's just take those, run with them, and see what we can kind of do and affect. Um, and it's kind of a, a quick way that you can just kind of get, uh, without having to have a long strategy meeting of what you're going to do, you can be like, all right, this is the strat we're going to take. It's already been established that it works. Let's go. Um <clears throat> So, uh, Rothbard, in recounting of the left's reaction to McCarthy, uh, sounds very similar to the shrieking uh, done by the left when Trump was elected, which is kind of interesting. Um, and, you know, they did everything they could to crush him, uh, crush McCarthy. Uh, they're doing a similar thing with Trump. Um, and, you know, uh, well, McCarthy apparently had a long, uh, successful history after they tried to cr uh, crush him in politics. Uh, we'll see what happens with Trump here, but, um, you know, time will tell.
Uh, Rothbard concludes that McCarthy's ability to start a counter-revolution to the establishment left was by being able to clearly communicate uh, the threat to the average person uh, was one of the reasons for this reaction. So being able to get the people, the average person, to kind of see and understand, and uh, not that they didn't ever really care, their their minds are shut off, but, um, you know, he's an effective communicator. Another similarity, interestingly, to Trump. Um, you know, that was one of the things, is he... he communicated effectively with his base his the the everyman kind of thing the the blue collar worker type <clears throat> he could communicate effectively with those and uh, McCarthy had a similar ability to communicate hey you know they're they got all this fancy mumbo jumbo and they're doing all this propaganda and rhetoric and stuff like that to throw you off the case here's the clear-cut truth of what's going on here's you know some simple a b and c of understanding what's going on and <clears throat> and it just cuts through uh their stuff, you know, uh, truth is the most effective rhetoric, <clears throat> but it, it has to be, it still has to be a couch in an emotional appeal to be rhetoric. It can't be dialectic. Um, uh, then interestingly, he goes into, uh, equality and how it was used. It's been used as a weapon to cut down barriers. Um, I would go a step farther in saying that freedom is a similar thing that is used to either make it so those people of equality, uh, the barriers are never raised in the first place because they'd be like, oh, you can't, you can't shut me out because that's against freedom of speech or something like that, or are themselves also weapons used to tear down things. Um, they use, use freedoms to be able to do debaucherous and deleterious things and then use that to uh, tear down the institutions in which those freedoms were granted and then remove said freedoms from people. Uh, we see this all the time. Uh, basically all of social media is a uh, living proof of how this works. Uh, the advantage the right has over the left is that uh, it can build while the left must act as a parasite. Uh, as we can see in the modern America, it has a tendency to kill its host. So that is the, uh, that's kind of the white pill is that the, the hopeful message I want to kind of leave this overall thing on is uh, if you can build, then it doesn't matter what the parasites can do because they can't live without a host. As long as you keep the parasites out of the thing that you built, <coughs> which is the hard part, <coughs> um, then they will die. You know, they can, they'll suck their current host dry and then they'll wither and die. And that's kind of the interesting thing that we're going, that we're facing today. And that's why the idea of the parallel economy is so uh, such a good idea and such a <clears throat> effective way of kind of navigating this because for one, it goes completely around the entire political system that they have control of. And so they can't use any of their parasitic uh, systems to uh, suck it um, dry. As long as those people that are building that parallel economy do stand strong, stand firm and make sure that none of the grifters and um, other people uh, the parasites don't allow them into uh, the system. That's something that's hard to maintain over a very long period of time. Uh, doing it within a generation, two generations is usually doable. Um, but we will see overall how long that can be maintained. Uh, right now it's being built, so that is something that's got to be done uh, and something that I should probably also be working on. Uh, this is why uh, corruption is inherently parasitic. Uh, it's slow. It's a slow process, 
uh, while removing said corruption is a much quicker process because you got to clear it all all out at once. If you don't clear it all out at once, it's gonna uh, just recorrupt the whole thing and rot it away. I the example I like to use is uh, a building that's got rot in it. You have to if you don't have to knock down the whole building, you got to rip out all the spots with rot, and you do that all at once. You get make sure that you get down to the spots that uh, don't have any rot with, and then you just build right back up from there. <clears throat> and so, uh, even the clearing out of a corruption ends up being in at its core a building process. Does it have some destructive elements to it? Yeah, you have to carve away the corruption. You have to dig and and get to uh, the root of the problem and make sure that uh, you're building on a solid foundation. But uh, once you get there, it's it's not, you know, continuously um, tearing down or whatever. It's it's a building process again. <clears throat> and so um, that kind of that kind of wraps it up. I thought it was a very interesting article. Um, I'll leave that there for you guys to uh, read if you're interested in it. Um, if you thought this was interesting, uh, like, share, subscribe. I'm on YouTube. I'm on BitChute. I'm on uh, all the podcast things, Podbean, Apple, uh Google, I, I've, I've basically subscribed to all of them. So, uh, they're, they're wherever you want to get your podcast, that's where they are available. Um, but thank you guys for listening and I hope, hope you have a good day. Goodbye.